we can use data to help us in the prediction and forecasting of risk from meteorological events, for example, flooding or heat waves. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts and I'm the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're celebrating 100 years of our museums by looking in depth at 100 of our favourite objects and the stories that they can tell. We're looking at the sun in today's episode, or at least an object which allowed people to study how much of it fell on Morecambe since the late 19th century. Today's object is a sunshine recorder. At first glance, this object looks like a crystal ball, as its main component is a glass sphere about 9cm in diameter. This ball sits on a metal stand, which has a curved section nearly enclosing the sphere. On this metal band around the sphere sits a replaceable strip of blue card. Overall, the recorder is about 22cm wide and 16cm high. It was used at Morecambe Town Hall to record levels of sunshine for decades, and the records that they took are also part of the museum's collection. But these records show that the sunshine recorder was not the only piece of equipment at the town hall. In fact, it was part of a weather station there that collected information on all aspects of local weather for the Met Office to help them track and predict the weather and climate events. There are still recording devices which provide information to the Met Office around Morecambe today. We spoke to Dr Emma Eastow, Senior Lecturer in Statistics at Lancaster University, to find out more about measuring the weather, how they did it in the past and how it's done now. She started by telling us what a sunshine recorder is and a little bit of background on ours. A sunshine recorder is any instrument used to record how much sunshine a location is getting and it could measure the light or the UV rays. So lots of cultures have been tracking the sun around the sky for thousands of years but the first machine that we would recognise as a sunshine recorder was the Campbell Stokes recorder which was invented in the 1850s and refined 1870s. That is the kind of sunshine recorder that we're looking at today. It consists of a glass sphere in a metal frame. In the metal frame is a strip of cardboard, which is usually coloured with a dye, which is a dark colour but fades easily. When the sunlight goes through the glass sphere, it is concentrated into a point of light, which is strong enough to fade the dye and leave a mark on the card. As the sun goes around the sky, that point of light travels along the card and how much the card has faded at different parts can tell the observer how much sunlight it received at different times of the day. Nowadays, we have digital sunshine recorders, which means that light levels can be recorded on a computer and are much more sensitive. But recorders like this one were used for well over 100 years at spots across the globe, giving us a much better understanding of weather and climate. This sunshine recorder was used at Morecambe Town Hall, where they had a weather station on the roof. I'm not sure I would have wanted to be the one who went up to fix that when it went wrong. We know that this one was definitely used between 1896 and 1907, although the weather station was there for much longer. We have ledgers that recorded their observations from the 1890s right through until the late 1950s. They also recorded the overall weather conditions, bright, cloudy, rainy, etc., as well as the wind and the rainfall. 
Emma works on environmental data for her job, and she explained how this object and the data that it recorded link to the research that she is doing today. As an environmental statistician, I usually only get to see the data that's produced by recorders such as this one or their modern day equivalents in the form of a spreadsheet or a text file. Unfortunately, I don't have the privilege of going out on data collection and field trips to exotic places. I have, though, been very privileged to work with a number of scientists and engineers who do collect this data from lots of different areas, including space weather physicists, hydrologists, glaciologists and atmospheric chemists. There are various ways that we can use data to help us understand the physical world. We can use data to help describe what we're seeing around us and identify patterns over space and time. For example, we can try to identify whether the temperatures at a particular location are gradually increasing or decreasing, or whether there's a change point when the temperature suddenly increases or decreases. These descriptions can help us to understand why changes are occurring. We can also use data to help us in the prediction and forecasting of risk from meteorological events or other environmental events, for example, flooding or heat waves. The records which go with the Sunshine Recorder stretch to hundreds of pages of numbers and notes from daily weather readings over decades. So how has data collection changed since our Campbell-Stokes recorder was being used? And is having a lot of data a good thing? So data collection nowadays is primarily a digital and automated process in comparison to the very analogue and manual processes that were in place when this Sunshine Recorder was in operation. Digitalization and automation has vastly increased the quantities of data that we can store. Whereas in the past, we may have had a small number of measurement stations situated across the country to measure the sunshine per day or the temperature at a particular time of day at each of those locations. Now we can measure the temperature automatically at a much larger number of sites on a more frequent basis. This gives us a lot more insight into the physical processes that we're measuring. We also have many different sources or ways of collecting data from in situ monitoring sites to mobile sensors, which might be on people's cars or on people's phones, to live data feeds, to remote sensors, which might be on satellites, taking measurements of the ground surface temperature from in space. On the one hand, it's obviously a very good thing, I think, because it means that we can understand the world around us at a much finer scale of detail than we ever have before. However, it does raise some really interesting problems in terms of how do we store that data? Where do we store it? How can we visualize it? Do our computers have sufficient processing time to handle this data? How do we identify any anomalies or errors in our measurements when we have just such vast quantities of data to look through. Another question that comes up is how do we combine information from different sources? If you're interested in measuring, for example, temperature, you might have measurements from on-site thermometer, but you might also have information from a satellite. 
and you might have information from mobile sensors which are moving around from location to location. To allow us to best understand how temperatures change, we need to be able to combine that data in some way. explained how she uses data, similar to that produced by the Morecambe Town Hall weather station, to predict extreme events and why data like this is so important in protecting us in the future. My job is to find ways to use this data to help us to understand and predict the risk of extreme events occurring. So for example, what is the chance that the River Loon will flood in the next 10 years? Flooding impacts many individuals. There's financial impacts for local communities. There's impacts on local councils and emergency service responses. There's also impact on infrastructure. For engineers in particular, there's a big interest in being able to accurately predict the risk from a flood so that they can design flood defences appropriately, design bridges appropriately, design offshore structures appropriately. Extreme events are often not so well understood, and there is a reason for that, because they are very rare, fortunately. And statistical models, which are very much data-driven, use historical information combined with a mathematical model to be able to describe the likelihood and the magnitude of these kinds of events. When a river floods, there's a reason that that river has flooded. Usually it's because there's been a lot of rainfall, but there might be other factors that come into play. For example, how wet the ground around the river is already, whether that ground can absorb the rainfall or not, how long the rainfall lasted, how intense the rainfall was. Often we don't actually have information on all of those factors. And so we build our model on assumptions about the randomness of the process that we're observing. My job is then to find from all the possible models that we could come up with, the one that best describes the data that we have, the historical information that we have. We wanted to understand better the sorts of statistics and phrases that we often hear on the news when extreme events occur. Typically, we're asked to estimate a return level. You may have heard of these in the newspapers or on the news after a, a big event. So to give a concrete example, the one in 100 year return level for the River Loon is the river flow that's exceeded on average once every 100 years. The on average part is quite crucial there. We're not saying that this is the level that will be exceeded exactly once every 100 years, but that we would expect to see one exceedance on average every 100 years. So we may see two or three exceedances of that level in 100 years. We might see none. We'd be quite concerned if we were seeing large numbers of exceedances of that level, however. An alternative way of thinking about it is that there's a 1% probability that the one in 100 year event is breached in any given year. And I think if you think of it like that, it's maybe a bit more intuitive that you could potentially have more than one exceedance of that level in a block of 100 years. There is Another potential fly in the ointment here, 
which is climate change. One of the impacts of climate change is that we're potentially going to see more extreme events from many of the natural hazards. Many return levels that are quoted in the media have been estimated using historical data. This historical data may no longer be representative of the processes as they are today or as they will be in 50 years time. All models are wrong, but some models are better than others. By working with the scientists who are generating and trying to understand these data, I can develop statistical models that better replicate the underlying generating mechanisms. To finish off, let's go back to the historical data that scientists use in their work and find out where information can come from in time periods before electronic data collection and even before weather stations like the one at Morecambe Town Hall. The 19th century is usually as far back as we have data on physical natural processes. The data often tends to be quite sparse the further back in time we go. So to actually have daily records in a digitalized way that I can work with would be quite rare. What we do have, and there's an example of this up the valley near Caton, there's a bridge there with marks of flooding, how high the river was for for various different flooding events back to the 19th century. That sort of information is useful to us, even if it's not directly data records in a ledger or on a computer, because it can help us to calibrate what we're seeing now with things that happened, say, 150, 200 years ago. And there's a similar thing with extreme space weather events. So these are when there's a solar storm and a load of electric material is sent towards the Earth and that interferes with the Earth's magnetic field. That interference can pass down to the Earth's surface and cause damage to power grids and railway lines and any metal structure on the surface of the Earth. And we have a similar thing there where going back to the 18th century, there are records of very extreme solar storms, particularly famous one called the Carrington event. In that case, the Carrington event was so large that it's used as a sort of worst case scenario And so when we're fitting statistical models, even though we haven't seen an event of that size for a very long time, we would expect our model to be able to predict something of that magnitude because we know that it did happen, even if it happened before formal recording began. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. Why not check out some of our other episodes where we discuss everything from badges to backstaffs?